fall into the theology bit. and welcome to The Theology Pit. This is theology out of Pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit. When they say that you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. Unless, I guess it's a really thin pit that you've fallen into. Maybe you bang your head, knock yourself out. Well, you'd still die of dehydration even if you knocked yourself out. Huh. You know, I've never really put a lot of thought into the mechanics behind a bottomless pit and falling into it. Well, again, I am your host, Samson Kovach. Welcome to... Uh, my podcast, and we are doing a series here on um, the application of the atonement, on salvation, on what it means that Jesus Christ died for us. He died for our sins. When people say that, what are they saying? What do they mean? What are the implications behind that? Now, the theology pit, I want to remind everyone, is not going to be just about Uh, this topic of the application of the atonement. I know it seems like if you've been listening, this is all I ever talk about. This is all the discussions. But it's because I wanted to start it out talking about salvation and talking about justification because this is a topic that a lot of Christians don't think about and a lot of Christians don't know. They don't know the history of, they don't know what all it means. So they have a, a difficult time explaining it to not only other Christians, but also non-believers. I mean, people would love me to sit here and talk about um, the Bible, for example, and how we got our Bible, where it came from, why do we have all the different translations, can we trust what's in it, what about the transmission of Scripture, you know, when it was passed down, was it corrupted or wasn't it? You know, I mean, you have... Uh, people like Bart Ehrman, who have written books, um, Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, and um, what was his recent book that I read? Um, How, How Jesus Became God. I think that's what it was called. Uh, but it's a, a lot of the stuff is, okay, if we have this book here, and this book is actually made up of a bunch of other books, well, how do we know that we have the right books? And on top of that... How do we know that we have the right words if we do have the right books? How do we know that all the books are equally inspired by God? They all, they're all different kinds of literature. They're all written in uh, you know, different ways. So how do we know? Um, how do we know that there is such a thing as God? How do we know that God exists? What are his attributes? Well, these are questions that we're going to tackle later on in the theology bit. But for now, we're going to stick with the history of the atonement. Now, while I would love to get into all that other stuff, I don't want to bounce around too much. I want to kind of keep us on one theme. And I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with these after I'm done. If uh, I'm going to maybe clean them up a little bit more, uh, I don't mean like the, the podcast wise, sound wise, I mean, uh, have some study materials with them, some outlines, write stuff out. Not everybody is a, an, an auditory learner. Some people are visual learners. Maybe I'll make some visualizations, uh, drop some timelines because the timelines that I have in my head that I'm, I'm walking through um, they, I, I can see them, I can envision them, and I can see where they're going, but if not reminded from time to time where we're going, uh, I think people can get lost. Uh, 
if you think back to what we've looked at so far, you might have an idea of where I'm going, but if see that that becomes my my problem here is that if I dump too much information on you at one time, it's hard to digest all that at once. But doing it over a longer period of time, it's difficult to remember what we talked about in the beginning that then led us up to this point and the different paths that I'm following. You see, since this is all in my head and I've kind of gone through my thought process of, of what's going on, there are certain intellectual threads, let's call them, or paths that I see in history. And I see people jumping onto these different paths or being influenced by them or stepping into them. And the implications that they have theologically when it comes to the application of Christ's atonement, what this means. It's why I started out talking about Stoic philosophy and the Gnostics. Not so much that that's what was being dealt with in um, the New Testament, uh, Gon's Gospel. Uh, yeah, Listen to me talk. John's gospel, um, the writings of Paul uh, when he was writing to Timothy, things that he was that, that they were talking about then, coming out of Platonic thought, um, coming out of the understanding of, of philosophy, and what those philosophical thoughts and arguments were. The reason why I spent so much time in that is because then when we fast-forwarded a little bit to the Manichaeans where um, St. Augustine came out of and what they were teaching. This is, you know, 300 years, 200 years after the New Testament was written, that their same ideas is now the same. These same ideas are permeating back into Christianity, that the fact that knowledge is the key to salvation. Knowledge is the key to your being able to live the perfect life or the right life or to be pleasing to God or to enhance the spirit. However you want to say it affects you positively. That's where they were going with this. So Augustine is like, you know, if I do this, I can live right. And then you continue on that thread. He abandons that. And we've talked about why he abandoned that. But you continue on with that thread. And that thread implies the ability of man's free will, man being able to make his own choices, and man being responsible for those choices. And through those choices can merit God's favor in some sense. Now, that kind of brought us into... Pelagianism. So the Manichaeans kind of went away in our talk, in our theological talk, but this idea that was the engine behind the Manichaeans and the engine behind the Stoics and Platonic thought is now moving itself into Pelagius's thoughts and this type of, of, of Pelagianism. And, and, you know, the either doing away or the downplaying of original sin. And then that gets dealt with. But 
it's it's funny because it's like it's officially condemned. The church doesn't want to fight. It's almost like we know what the right thing is. Okay, we we know the the proper almost the almost I I want to say the pure way that God wants us to walk, but it's so much easier and so much more tempting to then rely on ourselves to take our steps to say I can help guide my own way. I can I can move towards that end. Because it's very natural for us to think that. It's difficult for us to think that we have no free will. We don't make any of our own decisions without going into a type of fatalism or a type of determinalism where, you know, uh, can we even be held responsible for our actions if we're not responsible for them? And when you think about stuff like that and you start getting to the, the logistics of it, it makes a lot more sense. Now, but I would argue that this makes sense devoid of a theistic understanding. If you don't have the God concept in there, and and I know that on these podcasts, we have not qualified what makes God, God. We have not talked about the attributes of God. um, And so I'm trying not to use this understanding of God as in a, an abstract amorphous type thing where, you know, whatever your understanding of the white man sitting in the clouds with the big white beard and, and watching over everybody and, you know, that sort of thing, that that's, that's God, whatever you call him. I, I don't want to go to that. But this understanding of the biblical God, the God who transcends time and space, the God who says things and they come to happen. That's how we know who he is. The I am that I am Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the, the one who you will know by what he has done or what he is going to do. When I say God, I'm talking about that concept. And when you inject that into your thought process, it really does throw a monkey wrench into a purely logical, almost atheistic thought. And not atheism as in um, modern-day atheism, but atheism as in um, the negation of a God concept. Um, not, not talking about the, um, like the movement we have in America today, but just the, uh, the concept of it. Even, even if you have like an agnostic concept, it makes it, you know, where you, you know that there's a God, but you're not really sure how. That even plays a role in it. In this understanding of you know, man's free will and man making the choices and man being able to better himself in, in some way. And I'm not advocating that man can't better himself. I'm just advocating that um, without God, the process is retarded. The process is very, very slow. Um, if you tap into the being who is being itself, who has all knowledge, who can direct your footsteps, who can guide you, you can move in leaps and bounds where if you're just relying on yourself, on mankind, it's very sluggish. It's very difficult uh, to move. So I I, want to push for this understanding because all of these mental exercises that humanity has done 
has in one way or another influenced the way that we understand the atonement. And I, the, I think the reason why we're able to do this again is because of our anthropology. It's because of what we are. The fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God, meaning that we possess uh, certain attributes that God possesses also, the, his communicable attributes, the attributes that can be communicated to us, but not his incommunicable, of course. Um, the fact that, you know, we are not eternal, um, it, the fact that we are not all-knowing, we are not all-powerful, but the communicable ones, that we do know some things. We have some kind of power, um, some say that we are co-creators, uh, with God. God is a creative being. We are creative beings. And because of this, God is logical. We have a logical ability, but the effects of sin, that is what's tainted us. That is what slowed our process. That's what makes it kind of hazy to, to see. Um, if you're running down a football field, and you know that there are going to be people in your way, you can plan for that, and you can look out for them. Even if they're not moving, you can watch out. But if it's a foggy, foggy day, and you can't see five yards in front of you, it's going to take you longer to get to that end zone, even if nobody's moving. And it's, it's the exact same physical scenario, but you now have injected this fog in there. And some people are not in the fog. They are in total, absolute darkness. And to make it even more challenging, I suppose, let's say that you had to do it through the reflection of the mirror, through, through a mirror. So everything is opposite. And now you have this hazy, dirty mirror that you're using to get through a darkened, foggy course with people in it. It's going to take even longer. Even if you are eventually able to get to the understanding at the end of that football field, it's going to take longer. So you might do some things on the football field that would be unnecessary. They could be beneficial. They might be beneficial, but ultimately they would be, I I would say, unnecessary in what you're doing. For example, flailing your arms out in front of you as you walk. Okay. It's going to keep you off balance. If, if you could see, or if somebody could help guide you, you wouldn't need to do that. When we get to the point that we're at now in history, we're looking at the 14th century, 15th century, 16th century here. We talked about the popes. We talked about the churches that were going on. We talked about all this stuff. When it comes to the history of the application of the atonement and what it means that Christ died for us, there really wasn't anything that was definite that was put into place because there were other things that were going on. And we talked about some of them, but there are some additional things I'd like to bring up also. We didn't talk about the separation between the Eastern and Western churches, the, the formal separation of uh, 1054 AD. There was a problem between the Eastern and Western churches that we saw from, you know, going back to the second and third century, more to the third and, and fourth century here. When you had the, um, 
the the problems with the um during the persecution that was was taking place at different times you had people who would stop being Christians. They would sacrifice to false gods. They would, I mean, many were martyred, but you know, you had some that ran some that wouldn't do that. And you had the, um, I got to find, I got to find my notes here. I, I just had it, just had it written down their their name. It's always a, a tricky name for me to get. So I have to, I almost have to spell it out like, like phonetically, um, uh, for myself. I might actually have to pause the recording and, and find this. I thought I thought I put the notes right in front of me. Could have swore that I did. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. I'll be right back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was right right here in front of me. Okay. So the Nevantianists. Okay. We talked about them and how they eventually also became the, the Donatists, known as the Donatists. The Nevantians, I guess you could say they were... Um, like during the Decius um, persecution and the Donatists came after the Diocletian persecution. All right. So you're looking at like, you know, 303 for the Diocletian persecutions, uh, somewhere around there. Um, and they had a big problem with these people who were, you know, not only not standing up for the faith and, and running away and that sort of thing, but also ones who were turning over um, the Bible, books of the Bible, to be burnt. Um, now, I you know, on the very first podcast, I talked about getting into, like, the Gospel of Peter, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the um, Shepherd of Hermes, all these additional books known as, you know, apocryphal works or pseudepigraphal works. Uh, that weren't included in the New Testament and why. If you have your life put on the line about whether or not something is the word of God, you're going to make sure whether or not it's the word of God. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, that gospel of Judas that you have, that is you know, the uh, part of the Christian Bible, that's part of the, the word of God that you worship. Burn that now. The emperor says you have to burn that now. Most Christians be like, okay, I don't have a problem with that. It's not the word of God. I don't care. You know, I'll burn it. But if it's something like, you know, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew, um, it's going to be much more difficult. So people would really know what the scriptures were, what the holy writings were, because their life was on the line. They, they better know. I mean, no one wants to, to die for a lie die for something they know that's not true. So they would do that. But there were some that they did hand over the holy writings and they were burnt. Um, and these uh, docetists or donatists, sorry, docetism is a, a different thing. Uh, they were a heretical group. And we talked about them before too, but the donatists, uh, they're, they're the Puritan ones here. Um, they, we're saying that these people are ones who hand over or the handover ones um, that, you know, handing over the, the gospels, those sort of things. And the name for that, if I can remember properly, was uh, the shortened version of it was traitores. Uh, these traitores. It's where we get the word traitor from. 
Um, it's the it's the root word of that. And these were people that were they considered them like separatists. Um, they considered ones who would e- eagerly, you know, split the church, e- eagerly divide the church, eagerly hand things over. Very negative connotations with it. And so, at this time, the split would start being evident. Um, St. Augustine uh, helped put it back together um, to unite the church in a a sense. Um, The understanding of the word Catholic meaning universal because they were arguing that, hey, you have these people who are bad people and they're not, we don't think that they're true Christians. And he would use the um, parable of the two different types of seeds, a farmer you know, sows you know, seed and uh, the wheat and the tares grow up together. And you can't pull out all the weeds, um, all the tares, because it'll destroy the wheat. So you have to wait until the harvest and then separate them then. And the church is like that. And, you know, it, it started getting into discussions on well, what about apostate priests, you know, th- that sort of thing. Is it, is it still valid, the works that they do, all that stuff. So, you know, he started seeing a little bit of problem there between East and the West. Not a huge problem. Well, some would say it was a huge problem, but it's definitely it's that first fracture. And then with the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Constantinople Creed, at some point, and when we get into um, maybe creedal theology, if we discuss any of that or we discuss like the creedal wording, creedal councils, the, that sort of thing, you have something, what's called the filioque clause, and it means, um, and of the Son. And it's the part in the Nicene Creed where it states that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And that's originally how it was left. But then, and of the Son was, was also put in there. But it wasn't done at a um, ecumenical council. It was done at more of a local council or regional council. The whole, uh, all of the, the, the bishops of Christendom, I can never say that word, uh, were not asked to bring it together. It was not truly a worldwide council of representation. And so that caused problems there. And then in the 11th century, when the Crusades were going on, and... Instead of helping the Eastern churches against the Muslims, against Islam, uh, they went in and just kind of ransacked them and then left them there for the Muslims to just overrun. And that really, really, really was like the huge separation, the huge dividing line, the big break uh, between the East and the West. It was pretty terrible. But remember what's going on also at this time, that the understanding of the bishopric of Rome is getting bigger and bigger, okay? It's it's now getting more influential. It's getting more powerful, and it's becoming much more political. And the last podcast, we talked about the implications of uh, what happened because of that, everything that was that was going on. So... Again, when we talked about the different popes and everything, and, and you know, we got to 
the um, the last pope of the time. I believe it was uh, was it Martin the fifth? Not sure which one. Uh, but who said that he wanted to unite the East and West again? Um, you know, uh, get them, get that whole thing set back up. And you're talking, you know, late 15th century. Um, so that's, that's kind of a big deal. So when you look at all of the outside things that are going on, you can understand why there was not a lot of thought or emphasis or energy put into how exactly does Christ's atonement apply to us? And I, I mean, I can understand that, you know, I mean, it's, it kind of goes back to our big question of this entire series, which is if the doctrine of justification is such a big deal, if it means so much, why wasn't this the first thing that the church articulated? Why wasn't it the first thing that was thought about? And I hope you can see as we've been doing these podcasts, why that was all, all the other different things that are going on. So now, while the leaders of the church are busy with all the different politics, all the different um, forms of nepotism and uh, the the pluralism and the simony and, uh, you know, all the horrible things that are, are going on at the top levels, it's almost superficial in a way because they're starting to get to be much more governmental and less theological. And things are getting worse and worse. And so you had out of this theologians and people, I mean, because there's still good people in the church and even up in high ranks. And they don't like what they're seeing. They don't like what's going on. The people, of course, don't like what what's going on. I mean, with the taxes and everything. And so, you know, you got to start asking yourself the question, why is everything so bad? Was it ever this bad? I mean, this is this is not how it used to be. We don't think anymore. We don't think, I don't want to say don't think properly, but we don't think fully. We don't think on the level of what is most important, and that is our eternal destiny with God. So at this point, I would like to inject in and discuss the concept of the humanists and humanism and what that was. Now, in 21st century America, we have an understanding of humanism and the humanists. And this is not what we're talking about here. This is not the beginning of this group. This is not an atheistic society um, that just views humans as, you know, extremely important and, like, that's kind of all that there is. This is a different understanding of the word humanism, totally different connotation. So kind of anything, any idea that you have about the humanist movement today in 21st century America, remove that from your thought because these humanists are very, very, very religious, Okay. They started up in, we could say roughly the late 1300s, which would be the late 14th century. And think about why, because 
we look at everything that's going on. It was like 1378 that we had this great schism where we're getting all these different popes and everybody's busy with all the different popes and, you know, uh, all the different um, uh, emperors and kind of that like infighting and the, you know, all the corruption that's going on. And these guys were like, we need to straighten some stuff out. Let's, let's get some stuff straightened up. But our faith, the Christian faith, isn't just mechanical. It's not just going to a mass. It's not just partaking of the sacraments. It's not just doing these certain works. It's not just this. There has to be passion in it. People have to be fired up for this. People have to, to want to know God more, to want to do these things, to, to live a fuller life. In a fuller religious life, a fuller Christian life. And that's what the humanists were wanting to do. When it came to preaching, they would preach passionately. They would stir people's emotions, okay? And in doing this, this is why people really started liking them. This is why they would be hired at certain times of the year to to come to towns you know, and, and preach, you know, so you had, there's a, a list of these, these great preachers and they would want them. Oh, you know, we really want you for Easter. We want you for good Friday, you know, and people would come out, you know, to see if they knew like, you know, one of these preachers was going to be near because another thing that they did was they didn't preach in the new Latin that every, you know, every, I want to say snooty person, you know, but all of the well-educated people um, spoke. It was the, you know, the language of the elite. Okay. And they didn't preach in that. They preached in the vernacular, in the language that people could understand. And people would be like, woo, yeah, man, I love you. Like, you totally rock the second Sunday in ordinary time. Yeah. You know, like, like, I mean, this was a big deal. And the humanists were like, People need to be informed. The reason why the church is in the state that it's in is because people have this type of implicit faith. They have this type of faith that it's just been told to them. Why do you do it? Well, the priest told me to. Okay, that's implicit. It's not explicit. It's not, well, why do you do this? Well, the reason is, is because, you know, the gospel say this, the church father says that, the word of God says this, my experience says that. They're not, in a way, systematizing what they believe and, and able to explain it. The humanists said, we need to start teaching people and we need to get back to when we were smart, to when things were good. When stuff was going on. So they had a battle cry, which was ad fontes or ad fonts, uh, which means to the sources, the word uh, font um, meaning uh, fountainhead, where the fountainhead springs, the, the source of where it comes from. Um, they wanted, and when I mean sources, I mean they want the gospels in the original languages, they want the Greek. Okay, they want the Hebrew. They want the old Latin. Okay, they want to read the philosophers of old, the Aristotles, the Socrates, the Plato's, the Stoics, the Gnostics, 
um, the Gospels, um, the Church Fathers. A lot of emphasis on the Church Fathers because they figured that the Church Fathers being so close um, to all this type of uh, originality would have a better insight. And so, therefore, we need to kind of get rid of this crude new Latin that we've been teaching and get back to the old Latin. The Bible, which translated into Latin in the 5th century by St. Jerome, and it's called the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. And they're saying, look, people, they should be able to read the Bible. Okay. But what's interesting is that these guys had all this knowledge, okay? But one of the things that they did was, well, they would put down people that didn't. When we talk about this period in history, a lot of times it's called the Middle Ages. The humanists are the ones that coined the term Middle Ages, the ones that called it the Middle Ages, because they saw it as a time in between the great knowledge and intelligence and the great body of work and the right living, the orthopraxy of the ancients, of, of a thousand years beforehand to now. So they would look at them as like two peaks, two intellectual peaks, and all that stuff in the middle that was pejoratively called the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages or, you know, it was just seen as very, uh, you know. And people that had implicit faith, they just kind of looked down on them. Oh, you just believe that because some your priest told you? You know, I mean, so, yeah, the snootiness came, you know, with it. But that's what they were doing. And they were like, you know, if we can get these sources, which, which they did. I mean, we talked about, you know, the, the rise of Islam pushing, uh, manuscripts like, like towards them. And, you know, they had good manuscripts from, um, you know, Alexandria and, um, just from the, uh, the Eastern, uh, part of the, um, the, the Christian world, everything's being pushed West. They're getting a lot of these Latin manuscripts, those sort of, of things. And they're studying, and they're like, you know what? If we have this kind of knowledge, we can live right. If we teach people how to think properly, we can live right. Because people, when they learn, they internalize things. And when we, we stir their emotions, they really hold on to it and they internalize it even more. And then they will start to live the perfect godly life. And that is what is desperately needed with a church where it's it's going crazy with all this immorality and all this backbiting and stealing and just all kinds of stuff that's that's wrong. We can get a groundswell movement. We're going to take over the colleges, which they did, the universities. We're going to teach this way. We're going to do these things. But my question here to you is this. Does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this sound like the pitfalls of what happened in the early second and third century. Cause to me it does. And I'll articulate what exactly I mean by that right after this.
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. The reason why I brought up the uh, Manekians again and St. Augustine was for this reason. Because even though they're going back to the church fathers, it's almost like they're not paying attention to what he came out of and, and what they were fighting against. See, he was under the impression, Augustine was under the impression that if he could gain knowledge, he could control his body, he could control his emotions, he could live perfectly, he strived to live the perfect life. And he could do it through education and through knowledge. And then he kept failing constantly. Even though he would be preaching that you could do this, he constantly would fail. And then he comes across the, um, the Christian monks who he considered to be idiots, that they didn't know anything. They were not nearly as educated as he was, but yet they were accomplishing what he set out to accomplish. And that's when he eventually abandoned that. It seems like with the humanists, by going back to this, these sources, these understanding, it's like they have all the information sitting in front of them, but they threw out the lessons of history that were learned from going down this path. They're repeating it. Uh, they're repeating this path, but they're doing it in a way that they're saying, well, you know, he wasn't a Christian to begin with, or it's different now. And we hear that argument in all kinds of stuff. Like, you know, when it, when it comes to like bad philosophies in maybe like governmental systems or something like that, you know, um, we would say, well, you know, it didn't work out for them, but we're not them. So, you know, we can actually make this system work. And that's kind of what these humanists are thinking. They're moving along this line and they're you know, kind of working this out. But they're doing it for a noble reason. They're doing it because, hey, we've got to do something because, you know, doing nothing is not working. And, you know, the beatniks didn't come about until the 1940s and 1950s in America where it's like, hey, man, we tried nothing and we're all out ideas. It's like, OK, we've been doing the same old thing here and it's just not working. But it seems to have worked better. There were people of more integrity back then. Let us go back to those sources and get that integrity. And one of these people was John Wycliffe. And uh, if you've ever heard of the Wycliffe Study Bible or Wycliffe Study Bible, depending on your pronunciation there, um, he lived from uh, 1331 to 1384. And he is really kind of earmarked in history by a few big things. And... To be honest, if he had lived any other time period, if he would have been born a hundred years later, um, you know, maybe born, oh, I don't know, 50 years later or something, 200 years later, any, any other time later, um, he would have probably been, been killed. But the thing about him was that he was a very... I don't want to say like private person, but he was not one to want to go out in public and debate and get into in uh, theological arguments and those sort of things. He was much more pastoral with his approach. He wanted to 
just reform things. He wanted to fix things. Sure, he spoke out against stuff, and he spoke out um, vigorously. But at the time when he was speaking out, and the time he was doing these things, you were having this papal schism. You were having all these different popes. You were having all this stuff you know, going on. The uh, emperors had a lot of control. People had a lot, of, so people could protect him. Um, people could listen to him. It's not like you had one centralized uh, system here. Um, and that's another thing that we have to point out when I, whenever I, I talk about scholasticism, also and 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 the Reformation and stuff. It's not like there was a um, a centrist line of thought. Uh, it's sort of what I'm spelling out here for us to understand when we get to this idea of the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement um, and, and what it means that Christ died for us is that there was not this understanding of like one thought and everybody kind of came out of it. All these thoughts that are happening and all these ideas that are being put forth uh they are all slightly different and they eventually branch off. But here were like three of the big things that, that, that Wycliffe um, pushed for. First was private interpretation. He would argue that people could, in fact, read the Bible for themselves and understand it, find salvation in it, be encouraged by it, live a better life because of it want to live a more virtuous Christian life and understand why and internalize it and be uh, engaged with it and hold each other to higher standards. It would, it would fix things. People need to be educated in that way. And because he believed that, he took it upon himself to translate the Bible into the vernacular. So it, we get one of the earliest Bibles that's been translated after the Vulgate, which is the Wycliffe Bible. Um, it was done in the vernacular, um, New Testament first and, um, his associates that he had, um, you know, did the old Testament put out there. So that was one high mark of, uh, or earmark, let's say, let's say of his life. Um, he opposed the, uh, church's understanding of good works and the fact that we are uh, meriting God's favor through the good works that we do in the church. And he's kind of arguing and saying, well, no, God's giving his grace uh, to everybody through all kinds of different ways, not just through that. You know, people being good to each other, God smiles on that. God favors that. God gives grace. And third was the, um, that earmarks him, was the reception of the sacraments as vitally important to salvation. Okay. And in order for this to happen, you kind of do get into this debate of, well, does the priest then need to be right in, does he need to be orthodox? Does he need to be a believer in order for the consecration to take place, in order for the sacraments to actually be administered, for God's grace to be poured in you, for this, this sanitive understanding of justification? Um, he also, he attacked the privileged status of the clergy. You know, he didn't like the fact that everything was so political, that the clergy seemed to be above everyone else, that they were a class all on their own. Um, his followers were called the Lollards. I think I referenced them at the last uh, in the last theology pit. And the Lollards um, held to all of these things. They said, plus a, f uh, a few more. 
Uh, for example, predestination. Okay, that was something that they that they held to. Um, and we and we discussed a couple theology pits back: election and predestination. Uh, iconoclasm was another one. They were iconoclasts. They did not like the fact that there were um, icons and pictures and statues and those sort of things. And, you know, they wanted them taken down. They wanted them to destroy it. But, but another thing that's kind of interesting is um, they held to a Caesaropapism. And I said that all wrong. Caesaropapism, um, which is that the church and the state should be combined. That, you know, you should have political influence and political power. So it was kind of like a weird... I mean, you look at you listen to this list and you're like, wow, a couple of those things just seem out of place. But remember, if you're in this system where nothing's really been defined as we know it today and we look back through history, if you push just a little bit too far and you push just a little bit too hard, everybody's going to hate you and you're going to immediately be killed. I mean, that uh, or persecuted, imprisoned, how, however you want to say it, um, extradited. I think that's what it would be. Maybe I don't know, but you know, kicked out of the country, that sort of thing. Um, they were very down on the veneration of the saints. Um, they were very down on the sacraments. Maybe one day we'll talk about the veneration of the saints and you know, explain what that is and um, how that's viewed and how that's understood. Because uh, that's a whole other theology pit on itself. I just don't find it to be um, beneficial to us here in in this study of the application of the atonement. And also they were down on transubstantiation. And this is what really got, uh, Wycliffe in, in some trouble, um, was, you know, his understanding of the, of, of transubstantiation that really didn't turn into the body and blood of Christ. It was still bread. It was still, uh, wine that, um, going into this understanding of this, uh, transubstantiation where maybe we're pushing it a little bit too far into, um, you know, Aristotelian philosophy and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. He was more along the lines of a consubstantiationist where along with the bread and wine, um, you have the body and blood of Christ, um, that, he is present. You could even make the argument he would, but he never, he, he never stated this, but you can make the argument of you know, the spiritual understanding that we are being fed. And when we get later on into the reformation and we look at the difference between uh, Lutheranism and um, like Calvinism, and, and I, th- I may have touched on there uh, the differences in, in the way that they view communion, the body and blood of Christ. Um, Lutherans hold to a consubstantiation that, um, that you know, Christ is in, through, with, on top, around, behind, all, all over it. Um, but it's still bread and wine. Where the Calvinists would say that no, 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 it's that He is spiritually there with you, and you are feeding spiritually on it. But again, uh, He's kind of starting that out a little bit now. Of course. You know, his push for all this stuff, eh, he wasn't very well liked. And at the Council of Constance in 1415, he was deemed a heretic. Now, remember, he died back in 1384. Okay. So, you know, 1415 rolls around. You're like, what, 30 years? He's been dead, buried. I doubt they embalmed him. So, when they, they deemed him a heretic... 
they decided what we're going to do is we're going to dig up his bones, which they did, burnt them, and then threw them in the river. So they were like, You're, we don't like your stuff so much. I mean, they banned his writings. They wouldn't let people read them. They, you know, did all, and they said, he's, he's a heretic. Let's dig him up, burn him, throw him in the river. Um, but he had sympathizers all around people that, you know, would go to the universities to study and they would be learning. And humanism is very prevalent in, uh, in, in the societies. Uh, another prevalent, um, uh, I don't want to say view, but I don't want to say, well, it's like, I don't want to say competing view, but, um, uh, another didactic view, educational view, teaching view, understanding was that of scholasticism, the scholastics. And think about if the humanists are the ones that are really reaching the emotion and really being passionate about their preaching and wanting to reach people and really wanting to stir them inside. That is very emotional driven. It's very emotional based. You can, your emotions can be swayed because of that um, to something that might not be true. So the scholastics then, this was a, a, a teaching and it was dominated by the academics. So when you went to university and, uh, and, and, and you would study, you'd be studying hum- from a humanist perspective, but there would also be a huge scholastic influence there also. So these are two different um, understandings, okay? It, this is more of like a method of learning. And if, you're, if your goal in humanism is for people to learn, you need some type of mechanism for that to happen. And... They would say, well, no, the, the, the preached word that's, you know, changing people and, and teaching people and that sort of thing, that, 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 that's working just fine. Others would say, no, 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 no. We don't need a philosophy or a theology. We need a method of learning, okay? And so they had a lot of um, dialectical reasoning that was part of scholasticism, okay? Um, extended knowledge by being able to infer things, um, if there was a contradiction, you could resolve it. You could sit down and you could explain things. Whenever I do systematic theology and, and, you know, with what I'm doing a lot of times on, on these podcasts, I'm tapping into scholasticism a lot. Um, it, it's a, a tradition that definitely influences me and I understand the line that it's coming from and what it's doing. And I, I guess the way I justify it in myself so that I'm not deeming myself as heretical, I I suppose, or, or not wanting to put myself in, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the camp of the Stoics and the Manichaeans and, uh, you know, the, the Gnostics and everything like that is that I'm using it as a means of knowledge to understand why I believe what I believe and to understand how Christ's atonement has been applied to me. I'm not using it as a saving knowledge. 
I'm not using it to say once you understand these things, therefore you will be saved because you can't articulate them. That's actually the antithesis of what I believe and what I think. I use this and I also use um, when I teach, I'll, I'll use uh, a, a stoic or, or, or Socratic method in, in teaching where I help people to come to their own understanding and their own uh, con- conclusions of um, the problems that they have, the contradictions that they have. But it's it's a rigorous uh, 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 it's a rigorous oh man I can't even say that rigorous conceptual analysis and drawing careful distinctions. And I think that you hear that, you you can hear that a lot in these podcasts, why I'll have like, okay, here's the, you know, five different understandings of, you know, the uh, reading the scripture, you know, here's the three different parts of faith. Here is the two different understandings of, of the concepts of faith. And so, you know, you hear me break all that stuff down. That's because of scholasticism. That is what I'm now. The reformers, especially Martin Luther, was very influenced by this. Um, there were uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was very influenced by it. Um, John Calvin, very influenced by it. Because of this time of the humanists, this time of the, the Middle Ages and scholastics, is why you start getting this worldview of thinking about things differently and, and coming to an understanding, synthesizing why we believe what we believe and and how to apply it how what what that means okay so i don't want you to think that any of this stuff is in and of itself a terrible thing and i hope that i'm stressing that in these podcasts that if these things are imbalanced or incomplete and you just hold to you know, one or the other, and that's it. I think that that's wrong. I think that it's imbalanced to take a strictly humanist view. I think it's imbalanced to take a strictly scholastic view. I think it's imbalanced to take a strictly uh, recapitulation view of the atonement. I think it's, well, that's incomplete, but also imbalanced. Imbalanced for the ransom of Satan, uh, even the sacramental system, imbalanced. Um, when we get into the, uh, you know, well, the moral view also imbalanced, um, governmental views, uh, of, of the atonement, vicarious substitutionary view. If you take only one view in my, and this is all in my opinion, of course, I, I think that you're imbalanced. Okay. I don't think that it's heretical to do so. I think that it can lead to heresy and I don't think that. It's something that negates salvation. I just think that it's imbalanced and you're missing out on so much. Maybe that's why I spend so much time in history and so much time going through this stuff with you to, to talk about this and, and what's going on. But we need to understand what the, the, the mind frame, I guess, or the, you know, what people are doing at this time, what people are, are you know, talking about. So we have this understanding of the humanist. We have this understanding of the scholasticism and this thought. So then comes along uh, a little bit later, a man by the name of uh, Jan Hus. Okay. And he 
is born around 1369. It's always difficult to know like exactly when you know, people are born because you know of, of the time. But anyways, um, he is uh, you know goes through his his studies and everything, and in the late 14th century, early 15th century. So again, he's in the schools. He is studying and learning during this great schism with all these different popes and all this stuff going on and everything. And at the height of when uh, Wycliffe is writing and preaching out against the stuff and doing this and getting um, uh, some traction, some, you know, people are putting him down, of course, and trying to stifle him and, and those sort of things and, and saying, you can't read his writings like that, this, that, and the other. Um, Jan Haas falls in love with his work and he even, um, publishes his own, uh, he, he's from, um, the, the Czech, uh, Czech Republic. Well, what we know is the Czech Republic, I guess, or, or I guess, I guess I could just say Czech anyways. Um, Bohemia. Okay. He's, <laughs> this is what helped spurn the Bohemian Reformation. If you've ever heard that. And it's also known as the Moravian uh, Reformation, uh, that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. And the Evangelical Free Church of America trace their roots back to this point. Um, they don't really trace their roots through uh, the reformers of the um, Presbyterians or the Reformation or the Lutherans or the Anglicans. They kind of go this way. There's almost four or five different branches uh, that, that come out of all, all this stuff when you get into Protestantism. But anyways, back to Jan Hus. Um, he would, um, preach openly and read openly, uh, Wycliffe's teaching, especially on, uh, the doctrine of, uh, what's, what's called, uh, impination of the Eucharist that it didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't transubstantiation. It was that, you know, along with this, it's, it's, boy, you're going to get in the a lot of, again, this is where the scholasticism in me comes out. It's like, I want to explain the difference differences between consubstantiation and impanation. Uh, they're, they're very subtle in my opinion. So I'm just going to use them synonymously. If you'd like to write to me and tell me how I'm wrong, I'll, I'll correct that. I don't have a problem uh, doing that. But, um, so he, you know, wrote and preached out against this stuff. And then he eventually came to the understanding and uh, rightly so, because look at what he's living through as a, um, uh, what I want to say, you know, as, as a priest and as a student, he's obviously like the rest of them seeing a necessity for there to be a, reforming of the church or reformation. Um, now again, these reformers are not separatists. Okay. They want to go back to what the church was before and, and do that. He eventually comes to the understanding that, um, Jesus Christ is the head of the church and not the Pope because he can't, because there are so many popes. Okay. And then, like the popes just get worse and worse also, you know, throughout this time in history, there is no really good visible argumentation that a pope or a council is the head of the church, is a good head of the church. So he's saying, no, I'm only appealing to Jesus Christ. And that's a really big step. So, yeah, of course, 
people don't like him and what happens. And he gets uh, burned at the stake. Um, he's uh, tried on uh, um, June 5th, 1415. Um, and, uh, you know, he gets um, eventually... Uh, Burn at the stake in uh, when was it June? I want to say it was around June in uh, fourteen fifteen, June eighth, uh, somewhere, somewhere. Oh, July sixth. I'm kind of looking through my notes here. July sixth, fourteen fifteen. Okay, um, that's when he gets. Uh, that's when he gets condemned. So being burned at the stake, uh, would, you know, he was, he was tied up, you know, to the stake, uh, chain put around his neck and, um, would, you know, piled up to his, to his neck. Um, and then he was, you know, uh, martyred in that way. And, um, of course, burnt and of course, you know, the ashes were then thrown into the river because they have a thing with that, I guess, to throw stuff into the river. But what happened after that is that, his followers, um, the Hussites, I think I may have mentioned them also. Um, people rose up and were like, no, this was wrong. And it did start a, uh, the, the Hussite wars, um, started taking place because of, uh, you know, w- what was, uh, going on. Uh, they defeated three crusades. Um, and again, they were they had a very strong presence, and the this was a group that, whenever the um, the councils were uh, putting together to choose a new pope and to reconcile things, and they were talking with the Hussites and wanting to bring them back into fellowship and into communion with them. Now, um, there are some other people that I could talk about in in this time period in, in what's going on, but you have this understanding of if you ruffle the feathers of these people in power, these, these types of popes, you are going to be brought in for a quote unquote hearing, a trial, that always ends in death. So you have to be a little more, let's say, tactful with it. All right. The next person I want to talk about is that of a man by the name of Erasmus. Erasmus was a humanist scholar, and he lived, let me get to my notes here real quick, if I can find time. Uh, oh boy, I'm losing my timeline here. October 1466 to July uh, 1536. And so, you know, as you can see at this uh, time period of his, of his life, you know, what's going on, this is when we were getting those kind of more politician popes, if you remember from the last one. And um, he really being, you know, being a humanist and being a scholar and, you know, living at this time period and, um, you know, having studied and having seen what had went on, you know, prior and, 
uh, you know, what what is done to heretics, like you know that that sort of thing. I mean, he knows like all that stuff, but he, I, I think he famously said that you know when I get paid, um, I buy books, and if there's anything left over, I buy food and clothes. Um, he took the whole concept of that ad fonts to the max, uh, and on top of it, he um, wanted to um, get the Bible translated better because the translation that people were using and, and reading in their vernacular was taken from the Latin Vulgate. Well, they were saying that, you know, maybe that wasn't the best and he's studying all of his Greek and he's um, looking at it and he's like, no, you know what? This, this isn't right. There are actually problems uh, in the Vulgate in the way that it's translated. And some of those problems are what's leading us to believe in these certain sacraments and in these things. For example, the understanding of grace being something that is poured into us when it's not grace, but it's, it's favor. So when you look at the verse, um, that talks about the angel coming to Mary and it'll say hail Mary full of grace, because that's where the Vulgate is going with that he would say, well, no, it, it should be highly favored one. Um, it should be a, a favoring. And that there are parts that are in there that, well, that, that shouldn't be there. Um, you know, the Yohanine uh, comma, which is in First uh, John, um, trying to remember where exactly it is. Yeah, First John uh, chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Um, and I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read all that. You can go read it yourself. It's, uh, and, and if you have a good study Bible, it should have uh, some notes in there. But he, you know, with translating the, the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, using the original sources, it was causing some, you know, problems in there. I mean, people didn't like that he, you know, took that out, like that they wanted that, you know, put back in. Um, he... His translation of the Greek is what Luther was using, um, you know, when he translated his uh, New Testament into into the German language. Uh, he, he was using um, Erasmus's uh, work. And Erasmus, he did do a lot of really good work um, for you know, the, the Protestant Reformation as it was coming up. But... Um, of course, he was holding to some things that disagreed with Luther. And I think I'm going to save it for the next theology pit. Um, him and Luther, like they're kind of back and forth because there's a lot going on there that really spurred to the moment that we get to um, Luther nailing the 95 Thesis to the door of Wittenberg and the German Reformation starting. And that all has to do a lot with... Um, justification and the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, which is our next study point. So the next theology pit is going to be really, really heavy on this understanding of the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, that what it means that Christ's righteousness was imputed to you, okay, not, not infused in you and not ingrained in you and not... Uh, transferred to you, but imputed to you. The fact that it's an alien righteousness that is outside of you, that it is extra nos, but it is uh, put on you. I think I heard one um, 
scholar one time say that, you know, justification is like a covering over you where underneath it you are wrestling with the sanctification aspect of it, of, of salvation. But um, Erasmus, you know, he could get into a little bit of trouble, but um, the Geneva Bible and the King James Bible were relying heavily on what he had. And some of the problems that he had with his uh, Greek New Testament was that he couldn't find any uh, Greek manuscripts of some parts of the book of Revelation. So he had to take the Latin Vulgate, translate it from Latin into Greek, and then people were taking that and translating it into English. So it was like almost like a, a retro you know, uh, translation there, uh, which is, which is kind of interesting, but it's one reason why people are kind of down on the King James version of the Bible, because where it comes from, you know, and that becomes a big issue because is, is this an authorized Bible or is this not an authorized Bible? And, um, that's why the King James version is also called the authorized version, the authorized text, but where they get their, um, uh, manuscripts from, and they get it from you know, a few other places, I think like nine you know, total, but why it's a good Bible English translation of the time, but today I wouldn't consider it to be a very good Bible. It's good for reading out loud, but not for study. But I hear the music there, and um, hey, check me out, samsonstick.com. You can write to me, samson at samsonstick.com, or um, leave a note on the Theology Pits uh, page on uh, Facebook. And um, I appreciate you listening. Uh, Make a donation if you like. And I think now is a very good time for us to close down the pit.